Hi, Scott Weatherford here. Uh, Pastor Sean spoke the last two weeks, and I love what he had to say about the names of God, the names of Jesus at Christmas. And we're going to continue in that series. That I love what he said. Calling him a boy was like calling an alligator a lizard. That was kind of my big takeaway from his like last two talks. But what, what a great concept to look at who Jesus is and what is his name. There's a lot in a name. When you say the name Jesus, there's a lot of people who have kind of, well, they're offended. Uh, they, they think uh, some, you know, like, uh, well, you know, he's, he says he's the only way, he's the exclusive one, he's a historical figure. Uh, some even think he's a mythological figure. But Jesus, the name of Jesus, there's power in the name. There's no other name given among heaven uh, and of men that we might be saved. The name of Jesus. But Jesus is more than just that historical figure. He is that one who changes and builds our lives. When I say the name God, that really carries a lot of weight. When I say this, the, the phrase, Jesus is God, that changes everything. So we're going to look at the name of Jesus today as Emmanuel, God with us. The presence of God with us. The first time I went to Israel, back in 1999, I was a tourist like everyone else. I was, uh, I've been five times now to Israel and we're going to go again in, uh, in November, next November, so you can look for information. We're going to go to March, but it had to be postponed, COVID, whatever. <clears throat> you look forward to going with us if you take that trip. But uh, first time I went there, I was just overwhelmed with the historicity, with uh, the evidence, the archaeological evidence, the, the, the cultural evidence of King Jesus. And then we ended up in this little town of Nazareth. And in that town of Nazareth, it was 1999, like I said before, and I was about four years, five years, six years into the church that we had started in Victoria, Texas. And I, I was there as a young, younger pastor, just a little about 40, and, and listening to all this and catching all this in was just kind of overwhelming to me. And then went to Nazareth, and we went to the synagogue where allegedly Jesus had taught. Now, you've got to be careful in Israel because they will say, this pastor Scott is the very place where, you know, Zacchaeus climbed the tree. Okay, we know there's not a 2,000-year-old sycamore tree. So, you know, you have to be careful of those kind of things. So we went to the synagogue that allegedly Jesus preached in. But was it the fact, the questionable historicity of the place, but it was the overwhelming, compelling thing that happened in my heart at the place. Now, I wasn't leading the tour. I was with another pastor, and he kind of reluctantly threw me a bone every now and then to say, hey, would you speak here? Would you speak there? And, you know, so it was just a little weird. But then we got into the synagogue in Nazareth, and I didn't volunteer to give a talk there. <clears throat> but he said, hey, Scott, would you mind sharing something here in this synagogue? And my heart began to pound because I remember what Jesus had said in that synagogue, and it had great, powerful meaning to me. And this is what he said. It's found in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He had sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recover the sight of the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now here it is in Christmas season, and in fact it was in November of 99 when I was there, so kind of the prelude to Christmas. This filled me with all kinds of just amazement. Why? It's just a passage of Scripture. Because it was on March the 2nd of 1992 that God used this passage to redefine my life as a pastor, redefine my direction of my life as someone who was going to join him in the building lives all for Jesus. 
This passage of scripture became personal, real with me, because the incarnate Jesus, Emmanuel, God with me, made me personally engaged with him in allegedly the very spot which he taught that. I could go and tell you more about what happened in the events that followed that, but I want us to focus in on that mandate that Jesus has brought to us in this season and what it does for you and me personally as we listen to who Jesus is in this Names of Jesus is Christmas. And you know who he is? He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for what you're going to say to us this morning or this afternoon or whenever we're watching. And I pray, Father, that you will speak through me, that it will not be my words but your words. And I pray, Father, that we will, we will walk away from this experience changed by the power of the realization of who you really are. You're the Lord our righteousness. You're the mighty God. And you're Emmanuel. You're God who is with us. And I pray this in your son's strong name. Amen. Now when Jesus spoke at the synagogue in Nazareth, he was actually quoting a reading from the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 61, Isaiah, this is what's called a, a prophetic utterance or the, uh, the messianic story. And he talks about the Messiah who's going to come. And in 61, he gives us a vivid detail about who this Lord, our righteousness, our mighty God, our Emmanuel, is in this account. So that's kind of where he launched. So we're going to look at 61, Isaiah 61, and let's pull it apart bit by bit. And let's look at what it says to us today. First of all, he said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Man, what a bold statement. You know, this bold statement by Jesus was that Jesus was the incarnate God. He was not a watered-down version. He wasn't a, a, a shadow of the God. He wasn't a, a, what the Gnostics would call a, a spiritual being, but he was the God-man, the God in flesh. Sean talked about superheroes last week. He is the God-man, not the Batman. He is the God-man, not the Iron Man. He's the God-man, not the Superman. He's the God who answers all our needs. He is the one who came to dwell among us. Now, before Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, uh, there was only two other guys throughout all history who had the Spirit of God dwelling upon them. And that was King David. It said when David was anointed king, the Spirit of God rested on him from that day forward. And John the Baptist, before John was birthed from Elizabeth's womb, the Spirit of God had filled him, and he leapt in his mother's womb about the arrival of Jesus. So only those two cats all in history had the Spirit of God. And Jesus comes, and he sits in Nazareth, and he makes that proclaim. Jesus is the Spirit of God in flesh. And he loves us so much now. Now that he has died and rose again, he gives us his Spirit to dwell in us. That's amazing to me. How this is what he does. What Jesus was saying, standing in front of this crowd, is here's God. Here's God. And he's saying the same thing to us. We have that same transformation, not just information, living in us. When you come to Jesus, you have you're his spirit. That is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus brings you to himself. And when he brings you to himself, he changes everything. Isaiah goes on to say, because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. Well, who are the poor? Oh, the poor are with us always. But you know what? You and I are poor. 
We're poor in spirit. We're bankrupt. We're broken. God longs for you not only to hear that he is for you, but he longs for you to respond to his rich offer of grace and his indwelling spirit in you. Wow. He longs for it. God is rich in mercy, and he's full of unfailing love. That means it's a love that won't let you go. It's a mercy that extends beyond our brokenness and our shame. The anointing of Jesus, when Jesus said the Spirit of God is upon me, is passed along then to me because of Jesus, that we might become the anointers of others with the grace of God. That because we've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, we then can be dispensers of the grace of God through our verbal witness to those who need Jesus so much and lovingly woo them through the drawing of the Holy Spirit that they too might receive Christ. It's kind of amazing that this is what he does. And then Jesus goes on to say this, Jesus is the one who binds up the brokenhearted. And if that's what he does and that's what he, who he is and that's what he's in, imparted to us, maybe we should be about the same thing. Let me read. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim the liberty to the captive and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for all who mourn in Zion and give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oils instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. This is such an amazingly rich passage. As Jesus kind of unpacks or delivers a deeper thought into what he's about, he is so rich in what he does that the broken that are healed. You know, whenever Jesus went on his earthly ministry, the first thing he did was met needs. If you were sick, he healed you. If you were hungry, he fed you. If you were discouraged, he would encourage you. Mostly he gave you the gospel. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is so transcendent, it heals my broken hearted. Now think about the word broken hearted. And literally here in Hebrew, what it was talking about was mentally distressed. Mental illness, depression, anxiety, addictions. The Lord is the one who steps in and brings deliverance. Uh, we live here in the hill country of Texas, and the hill country of Texas is a, is a, a prime place for, uh, well, recovery centers. And there's places here all over the hill country that specialize in recovery from addiction and brokenness. And, and some of them are Christ-centered, most of them are not. But what's really amazing is that you pay a lot of money to go into one of these institutions, one of these camps, one of these gatherings in order for you to have a broken hearted mended through addictions or anxiety or depression or whatever. There's one close to us. It's, uh, well, it's $60,000 a month just to get into the door. That's a lot of money. But Jesus says, I've come that you might be healed. I think this, that... If we took on the mantle of the healing of the brokenhearted, maybe mental illness would not be a taboo subject we talked about in the church. Depression, anxiety, addiction would become a signature cause for us to be the cure because that's what Jesus has come to deliver us from being broken. But it's more than just the deliverance of the brokenhearted to be liberated from sin and being held captive by my brokenness. Then I am not defined by my addiction. I'm not defined by my anxiety. I'm not defined by my brokenness. I'm not defined, and we'll say something maybe a little, little controversial, I'm not defined by my sexual preference. I'm defined by my holy God, and he's come to heal me. Jesus is Emmanuel, the one who's come to live in me. 
And God's favor is not based on my righteousness or my grace, but on his mercy and his love to bring comfort, to bring provision, to declare that I'm righteous. He talks about oils. You know what oils were in the ancient days? Sign of acceptance. He talked about splendored clothing. What was splendored clothing about? The covering of your nakedness, that you might be accepted. He is the God who is healing me. He's the God who's healing you. And that as he heals us, he uses us to heal others. Wow. But there's more. <laughs> I don't feel like I'm selling Gitsu knives. There's more. Jesus is the one who prepares me to live all for him. Then they will be called the, the righteous trees or the oaks of righteousness, planted by the Lord to glorify him. Jesus does these things in order for us to serve him. Your life is to be lived as a display of God's glory. In that year, 1999, when I talked about going to Israel, just in September, the few months prior to my trip to Israel, I, uh, I did a funeral service for one of my very best friends. His name was Billy Catan. Billy came to the Lord out of his brokenness. He had struggled with, well, a lot of things in his life, and he attended our church one Sunday, and he said to his wife, he leaned over and said, I'm going to become best friends with that pastor. And, and he did. We surfed together. We hunted together. We vacationed together. Our families became very intertwined. And I just love this guy. In the spring of 1999, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And he died in September. It was terribly tragic, heartbreaking for me. But my mind went back immediately to a conversation we had had in the winter of 1999, just as the year was rolling over into that kind of Y2K kind of frenzy. We were driving back from the beach. We'd been surfing, and we were in my pickup truck, and I was driving, and my friend Brian Brown was sitting in the passenger side. Billy was in the back seat, and uh, he was leaning kind of in the middle, and we were talking, and and uh, I was talking about a, a funeral I'd just done, and and uh, and I, I would say, what would you want to be, have said at your funeral, not knowing Billy was about to be diagnosed with a terminal disease? Billy leaned forward, and this is what he'd said. This is what he said. Live for Jesus sooner. That's what he said. Live for Jesus sooner. You see, at 43, Billy had lived a life, well, not for Jesus. But in those last three, four years, he'd gotten serious. And he was living all for Jesus. He was leading a group and became a deacon. And, well, he became a friend to a pastor, which, man, pastors need friends. Live for Jesus sooner. Because living for Jesus sooner changes everything about our lives. Years before that, I was sitting in a church service in Tallahassee, Florida, and I remember a sermon. Now, I know it's crazy to remember sermons because most of us don't remember sermons. But my friend Shuford Davis, my mentor, my counselor for all these years, he was preaching a sermon about, would you follow Jesus if heaven wasn't part of the deal? And I realized this, that living all for Jesus is the reward of life. Heaven is the, living all for Jesus is the purpose of life, excuse me. Heaven is the reward of life because you live all for Jesus. Our destination is heaven, but our reward is, is living all for Jesus until we get to heaven. As one pastor put it, this life is just merely preparation for the next. This life, how soon it passed, what all, all it's done for Jesus is what lasts. 
and that resonates with us, that I would be called an oak of righteousness because I lived all for Jesus. If your study then of Christ doesn't lead you to a life of service for Christ, then your study of Christ is wasted. Now, I didn't say your study was wasted, but if you're not leading to service to become that oak, that display, then it's wasted. Then Jesus sends you out and me out as Emmanuel, Jesus Emmanuel, to be a restorer. Listen to what Isaiah goes on to say, that when the mighty God, the Lord our righteousness, comes into our lives, this is what happens. And they, you and me, will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the former devastations. They will renew the ruined cities, the dead the destination, the destination of many generations. Strangers will stand and feed your flocks, and foreigners will be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you will be called the Lord's priest. They will speak of you as ministers of our God. This is the great calling of God to restore you so you can be used to restore others. You can join him in the restoration, revitalization of others. And there's no one more powerful to do that than one who's been restored. No one more powerful than one who's been restored. We've been engaged in church revitalization uh, and and church health uh, all over the world. I got a message as I was preparing this talk that I got a message from one of our pastors in Nicaragua that we had trained to, to lead healthy pastors at healthy churches. And now he's gone to a remote section of Nicaragua and he's, tra- he's trained over 35 pastors and church leaders because we empowered him. The ones who'd been broken, who'd been restored, went to one who had been broken, now restored, and he's gone on to restore others. And that is the work of God. Now listen to me very carefully. A gringo in, La- in Nicaragua is not listened to like a Nicaraguan to a Nicaraguan. And that's how God builds his kingdom. And he does all these things in our lives to come and dwell us, that he might restore us, that we might join him in restoration, and then it becomes contagious with others. And we build lives all for Jesus. It's crazy. You see, God, in this passage, he said they will restore the ancient ruins. He's not interested in cities. He's not interested in buildings. He's not... Chip and Joanna Gaines doing the fixer-upper. He's a God who's interested in people. He loves people and he loves cultures. And he's come to redeem and restore and to bring back. And his intent is all the nations would love him and enjoy him forever. So what does that mean? That means this church that you're watching online, that means we exist to restore, to be builders to restore you, to restore me, to change this town of Wimberley, this area called Texas, this this nation called the United States, this world wherever you're reaching. And it says our reach online is 31 states and six nations of the world. And God is not through with us in that. This is what he does. You know, Satan's favorite scheme is to make us comfortable and to focus on ourselves. God's greatest plan is to make us uncomfortable that we might focus on him and be a restorer. And this, my friend, is worth our lives. I stood in Nazareth that day, and I remembered the day God used those passages to speak to my life and define me. And what I suspect that perhaps he's using those same passages 
to define you and refine you today. So I'm going to quote my friend Billy Catan. Live for Jesus sooner. Today would be a great start. Pray with me, please. Father, I thank you for what you said to us in your word. And I pray that we will not just walk through an exercise of listening. But Father, we will lean in and let you speak to the depths of our heart that we might become those oaks of righteousness. Father, I can't help but think that some who are listening to me need to give their lives to you. They've studied you, but they've never committed to you. Maybe they've heard about you, but they've never known you. And I pray, Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit, as you woo them, you will forgive them and save them, and they will whisper this prayer, Jesus, I'm yours, and that you come to dwell in them. Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you for this time in your word, and I pray we will never be the same. And I pray this in your son's strong name. Amen. We're going to listen to a closing song. I invite you to sing along. And I want to remind you that your generosity, your end of your giving, help us do, help you join God in the mission of God, which is spreading the gospel throughout the world. This online ministry has been incredible, and your generosity is making it possible. So lean in and give. Also, take your next step. If you trusted Christ today, let us send you some information. Let us send you a Bible and some next steps. Just, uh, just raise your hand, and Pastor Scott Tidwell, he'll be glad to, to help you with your next steps. Or if you're a first-time guest or, or you're, you're new to us, uh, let us send you a T-shirt. It says Wimberly across the front so you remember who we are and where we are, that you have some folks in this heart of Texas that love you. I pray you, you enjoy today. I pray that you will live all for Jesus, whatever it takes. So listen to the song. And we'll see you again soon. God bless you.